0: When you look up into the sky on a clear night and you see the stars, what is the first thought that comes into your mind? Now, probably you say, well, must not be in Houston if I can see the stars this clearly tonight. Well, we think of different things when we see the stars. I read a little story that I thought was cute earlier this week. It's about Sherlock Holmes and Matthew Watson. They were on a camping and hiking trip. They had gone to bed, and they were lying there looking up at the sky. Holmes said, Watson, look up. What do you see? Well, Sherlock, I see thousands of stars. And what does that mean to you, Watson? Well, I guess it means we'll have another nice weather day tomorrow. What does it mean to you, Holmes? To me, it means someone has stolen our tent. So... (laughs) I guess when you look up at night and you see the stars, it can make you think of different things. One of the things that I think of when I see the stars is a verse in the Old Testament. I'm going to put it on the screen tonight. But in Psalm 147 and verse number 4, it says this of God. Notice how it's worded here. It says that he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Let's say that together. He counts the number of the stars, and he calls them all by name. And so on a clear night, you look up and you see all those stars. God knows the exact number of them, millions, billions, maybe trillions of stars, and God even has those stars, every single one of them numbered. Now, one of the things that I have never thought of when I see stars at night, but I should have thought of this, And from now on, I think I will think of this because I think this is one of the things we should think of when we see the stars at night. There's the night sky black, and there are these stars on this side of the sky. One of the things we should think of is what a beautiful contrast what a beautiful contrast those stars are, those silver sparkling stars are, to that dark black sky. And God intended it that way. Think about this. Had God made the stars black, they would still be stars, but we would never be able to see them. And so God gave the stars a different color, a different shine, so that in the darkness of night, we would be able to see the stars contrasting with that dark night sky. It is the contrast. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, wow, the stars are out tonight. Well, the fact is the stars have been out all day. They didn't just come out at night. It's just that you couldn't see the stars until the sun went down. And once it got dark, now you can see the stars. Now, I say that to say, as we're going to see tonight in Scripture, repeatedly, we as the children of God are referred to as stars. We're told in Scripture that we are to shine like the stars. Sometimes and oftentimes in the day in which we live now, we hear so much about the darkness of the world, all the sin in the world, and it, and it is bad. But keep in mind this, the darker the night, the more brilliant the stars. And so in the world in which we're living, can it be said of you that you are a wonderful contrast to the dark night sky. Let me give you some other Scripture verses. We'll put these on the screen too, but these are some of my favorite verses that talk about stars and how we're supposed to be like the stars. In Daniel chapter 12 in verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What's that saying? That is saying if you're a soul winner, If you share your faith in Christ with others, if you lead them to Christ, that you are like a star. And notice what it says those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars, Forever and ever, you're going to have a glow about you, a shine about you, not only on earth, in earth, on the earth, but in time, but also in eternity. And then in Matthew chapter 13, we read something very similar. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now watch this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so we have all these scripture passages telling us that God wants us, very much like the stars, to shine. The darker the night, the more sinful the world The more problematic things are in society, instead of us, letting that depress us or discourage us or bring us down, no, we should be shining brightly and the contrast should be all the more obvious. Listen, friend, in the world in which we're living in, unsaved people are not primarily looking for Christians to tell them how bad it is. Unsaved people are looking for somebody to show them that there's a better way. And that better way is in Jesus Christ. And so God has put us here and left us here not just to curse the darkness. Everybody's doing that. That's easy to do. God has put us here to shine the light of Jesus into a dark world. So that said, let's open our Bibles tonight to Philippians chapter number 2. We're working our way through this little epistle on Wednesday night, and tonight we're beginning with verse number 12, and we'll be reading through verse number 18. And what I'd like to do before we break down the outline tonight is to just read the passage, let your eyes see it, let your ears hear it, and then we'll step back and see what we can learn from it. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, now watch this next phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul here is instructing the church at Philippi, and God now through this is instructing us that we should shine like the stars and that our lives should be a great contrast to what is happening in the world. Again, at the end of verse number 12, notice the phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's an unusual phrase. We don't find that anywhere else quite like that in all the Bible. In James, he's saying something similar to that. But Paul here is saying that we're to work out our own salvation. Now, notice he doesn't say that we're to work for our salvation. There's not anything you can do to make God save you or to earn his forgiveness. You can't deserve your salvation. That's an act of grace. But after we've been saved, remember, Paul now is writing to Christians He's writing to a church in Philippi, and he says, here's what you're to do. Work out your own salvation. That is, God has worked your salvation in you. Now, what you need to do is work it out. That is, you need to let it show you need, by the way you live your life, to demonstrate to others that Jesus Christ is living in you. Let me give you some scripture just to jot down. I'm reading in my own Bible reading through 2 Corinthians right now, and I came across this, these two verses earlier this week that were, that were a blessing to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Listen to how he says it. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And then in verse 11, the same thing, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We talk about when a person is saved, Jesus comes into their heart, and that's true. He does in the person of the Holy Spirit. But what is Scripture saying here? Now that Jesus is living in us, that his life should be manifested, that his life should be revealed, that his life should be demonstrated, that others should be able to look at your life and see the life of Jesus being revealed and being manifested. And Paul is saying the same thing in Philippians with different words. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What are we afraid of? What is the fear? In Fear toward God. Fear toward offending God. And with trembling, the idea that we're very serious about our salvation. Certainly here you are on Wednesday night. Well, I mean... You're the most serious of anybody. I mean, you love God. You're in church on a Wednesday night. You're in a Bible study. And so you have that reverence and that awe of God. But Paul says as you work out your salvation, as you let Christ live his life through you, you should do it with reverence and with fear and even with trembling because of how serious this whole matter of God and and salvation and Christianity and the Christian life indeed are. So the question I want us to think about tonight is simply this. How do we work out our salvation? What does that mean practically? How do we go about letting other people see Jesus in us, the brightness of Christ living on the inside of us? It's interesting. The moon reflects the light from the sun. That's all the moon does. It just reflects what it received. But stars generate light within themselves, Now, when Paul says that we're to be like stars, what is he saying? He's saying the light is coming from within. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ in you, the light of the world. And that light should come out, and that light should shine forth, and that light should be seen by others. But as I worked on this Monday night, last night, and a little bit today, the question is, how do we work out our salvation? And so I want to mention three ways tonight From the text, and we'll see the verses that demonstrate this. Number one, in your attitude. In your attitude. Notice again what he says in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Without complaining, without murmuring, and without arguing. And so he's talking about our attitude. Letting the life of Christ shine through us begins not by what we do, and not by what we don't do. It begins by who we are and who Christ is in us, by what we think, by how we respond, but not just by how we respond in our heart, I mean outwardly, but how we respond in our hearts, in our thoughts. And Paul here is saying, in everything that you do, don't be a complainer, don't be disputing, Don't always be looking to pick an argument or a fight with someone. That's not becoming. That doesn't win anybody much to Christ. It turns people off. But do all things without that, that you would have no complaining and no disputing. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but there's sometimes in my life when I can complain without anybody knowing I'm complaining. In other words, I can complain in my thoughts and in my mind, and to look at me, you would never really know that I was complaining. But in my heart, and then other times you would know, but in my heart I'm complaining and I'm murmuring. And so when Paul here says, do all things without complaining and disputing, he's not just talking about, that word complaining literally means murmuring. And the idea here is that we're not just complaining about about what's happening in the world, but ultimately all complaining is against God think about this. Do you believe, and I know the answer is going to be yes, but I want to hear you say this. Do you believe that God is sovereign and absolutely in control? Yes or no? So that means that everything that happens, God either caused it or He allowed it. You believe that? Yes or no? So, if something happens that we don't like and we complain against it, If you really think about that biblically and theologically, behind all complaining is really a complaint against God. God, I don't like how you did this. I was thinking about this the other day. I was out watering my grass because we've not had any rain, and I was more concerned about my foundation around my house than I am my grass. I figured the grass would probably come back, but the foundation, if that gets in trouble, we're in trouble. So I was watering the foundation, and the thought ran through my mind, Let's just play like this drought was so, goes on so long that the foundation around my house cracks. Now, whose fault is that? Whose fault is that that the foundation around my house cracked? Well, you say, John, it's your fault. You didn't water it. You should have watered it. Well, that's true. But somebody could say, well, really, it's God's fault. Because if God would have sent the rain, then the foundation, you wouldn't have had a foundation problem. Now, that's not the right way to look at that, but I'm saying there's a certain amount of logic to that, and that's what, that's what causes complaining. We have a problem, and we go through something, and we say, well, now, wait a second. God's the one who sends rain, and if it doesn't rain and my foundation cracks, I mean, you could conclude it's God's fault that the foundation cracked. That's a wrong way to look at it. I'm not saying anything's God's fault. I'm saying the logic that there is logic in that. It's just not the right logic because we know if it doesn't rain, it's our job to water the yard. It's our job to water the foundation. But it would be easy with an illustration like that for a person to get angry with God because he didn't send rain, and therefore because it didn't rain, your foundation cracked. Now, people are probably not going to think that way with their foundation, but many times we do think that way with an illness or a death or a tragedy or the loss of a job. This happened. God is sovereign. God is in control. God could have stopped it. God didn't stop it. I wish he would have stopped it. He should have stopped it. And so our complaining really is against God. And that's what Paul is saying here. Do all things without complaining and without disputing. If it's dry, we pray for rain. If it rains, we thank God for rain. But friend, if it doesn't rain for three weeks, three months... Three years or three decades, we continue to trust God and water our foundation. Amen. And we don't blame God because it's-I mean, you can't you can't live, and that's what Paul is saying. You better be careful on this complaining. Because behind all complaining is really a complaint against the sovereignty and the goodness of God. I experienced this last week in my own heart. I was my dad and I last Tuesday morning drove to Brownwood, Texas, to be on the campus of Howard Payne University the next day. I'd been asked to go there and speak at chapel, and he and my dad and I had been asked after chapel to speak to a preaching class about how to prepare sermons. And I said to the professor who invited us, after you hear the chapel sermon, if you don't like it, you reserve the right to cancel that part of the day. I was telling you how to get up a sermon if you don't like the one you just heard. But he laughed, and we did that. But on the night before we left, it was one of those nights, and I don't know if you have them very often, I couldn't go to sleep. I, I guess I was excited about the trip, maybe a little nervous about the trip. You know how it is. You're up late packing, and you're thinking, have I packed everything? Have I forgotten anything? You get all this on your mind, and you can't go to sleep. Well, I didn't go to sleep that night until about 5.30 in the morning, and I slept until about 7.30 So it has two hours sleep, and I don't know if you've driven to Brownwood in a long time, but let me just say this. It's a long way from Houston. And I'm telling you, it is a long, dry, you might go 70 miles and not even see a grocery store or a gas station. I mean, it's like you're in, I don't think you're quite in West Texas, but it feels like you're in West Texas. It's beautiful, but it's a long way out there. I thought, man, I'm going to drive all this way. I've slept two hours. I didn't say anything. But I was kind of complaining, and I started thinking, Lord, maybe I shouldn't, Maybe we shouldn't even be going on this trip. I'm just thinking, kind of not verbalizing it, but in my heart, I'm kind of complaining. Well, anyway, I pick my dad up. We're driving out, and before we get to the Beltway, I get a phone call from a lady at the, who works at the hotel where we're going to be staying. She said, I need your credit card number, or we're not going to be able to hold your room for the night. I said, well, I'll be glad to give it to you, but I called about a month ago when I made the reservation, and I gave, you know, I gave you the credit card number, and I've got the confirmation number, and she said, well, if you've got the confirmation number, then you must have given us the credit card number. I said, well, I think that's right. She said, but we still don't have it. Can you give it to us? So I gave it to her, and she got it all worked out, and so I had requested, and I was paying for it in my own money, um, a double queen suite, two beds, a sofa, a suite. So we got there, and, she, and I said, you know, this is what we, she said, we've got it for you. She said, we're going to put you in room 208. And so we got all checked in, went up to the second floor, 208, opened the door, one bed, no sofa. And I went back to the lobby, and I said, ma'am, no problem here, but trying to get into a double queen suite, two beds, a sofa, we've got no sofa and only one bed. And she said, I'm sorry, sir, let me get that fixed. She said, your last name was Redmond, right? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I gave you the room for the reading family I said that's no problem it's easy to mistake she said I'll put you in room 219 now that'd be better I said that'd be fine got the keys to 219 went up there sure enough two beds in fact she walked she went up there with us two beds a sofa perfect she went back to the lobby I had to go down the hall to get something I came back in my key wouldn't open the door I got my dad, and I said, come out here and see if your key will open the door. Well, his key wouldn't open the door. Went back to the lobby. The lady said, well, let me come back up. She said, my master opened it a minute ago. She, brought, she said, the, now the master won't even open the door. She said, I'm so sorry. Let's come back down, and we'll start this over again. And I'm thinking, I got two hours sleep. I shouldn't have come on this trip. My plate is full in Pasadena. I don't need to be doing extra stuff like this. She said, look, really, in the computer, we have you down for two. We have you reserved for two rooms instead of one. I said, he and I get along fine. We can be fine in the same room. She said, I'm going to put you in 222. I said, 222 will be fine. And so we got in 222, got in there, two beds, no couch. But I said, that's good enough. The door opens. I'm going to take it. You can can have the couch because I can get in this room. But I'm telling you, it was about 6 or 7 o'clock that evening, and I'm thinking to myself, never should have made this trip. And I'm thinking, God, the only reason I came is I thought you wanted me to come here. Now, look at this mess that we're into here. Didn't say it, but that was what I was thinking. We went and had dinner that night with the group we were going to be with the next day. Wonderful meal and wonderful time. The next morning, we went to chapel. I spoke at chapel. I I got up to preach. They had a microphone on me like this. For the first five minutes of my sermon, the microphone was popping, 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 popping. And I'm thinking, this is not First Baptist Pasadena. I have no authority here. They gave me a pop of microphone. I'm going to preach with a pop of microphone. I'm not going to say anything. But it was very annoying to me. And I know to the 800-plus kids, students out there, listen to this. About five minutes, and I'm thinking, God, this thing's going from bad to worse. About five minutes into that sermon, the president comes up on the platform, super guy. I hope we're going to get him to preach here. We have spent much time with him. I wish that we could hire the president of that school, to be on our staff. be the greatest thing we could ever do. But I don't think we can. But anyway, he came up on the platform, and he said, John, I can't take this popping anymore. It's driving me crazy. I said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. (laughs) He handed me a handheld mic, and I just kept on going, kept on preaching. And, you know, it was a, I'm not going to say good sermon, bad, it's just a sermon. They said, you finish at 10.45. I looked at the clock. It was 10.37. I, and i was finished and i thought to myself i got 8 they said 10:45 i've got 8 minutes my sermon is over but i'm going to take the time they gave me that's what i thought cuz i drove a long way out here <laughs> i'm going to go to 10:45 it was like god said in my heart john you finished the sermon i had preached on trusting jesus for our salvation and trusting jesus during the difficult circumstances of life. That was my sermon. And I illustrated it out. I had scripture. And so at the end, it's like God said, You have eight minutes, give the invitation. I did. I said, You know, I've never been here before, and I don't know how y'all normally do it, but I said, Here's what we're gonna do. We've got time, and I'm gonna give you a chance. If you have never been saved, 800 college students, if you don't know for sure that you're saved, just like we do every Sunday, gave the invitation. I let in the prayer, and I said, you know, I'm going to just play like I'm at First Baptist Pasadena. And I said, if you just prayed that prayer to be saved, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. I'm going to ask you to confess your faith in Christ. All over this beautiful chapel, if you have prayed that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand up now, and by standing, to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? It felt like a a good Sunday here at First Baptist, people started standing. People started standing in the front and the back and the upper level. And before it was over with, about 23 people had stood and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I thought, you know, I didn't sleep. Not much. The rooms got messed up. The microphone wasn't any good. But what I should have been doing, instead of saying, God, why did you send me here? God, did I make a mistake? God, should we even be here? What I should have been saying is, God... I don't understand any of this, but you're absolutely in control, and I trust you. Now, see, the people I was with that week, they never saw me complain because I'm too smart for that, right? I mean, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. But in my heart, I was thinking, and so that when Paul here is saying, do all things without complaining and disputing, he's, he's saying, it's not just what you say to people. It's in here that our hearts should be filled with faith. And I'm just confessing that I didn't handle that well. Outwardly, I got 110. Inwardly, I got a C minus or a D because I was like, God, why did we even come? But God showed me, and it reminded me, and I want to give you this quote. I gave this months and months ago in one of my sermons, but a tremendous quote by Charles Spurgeon. And as I reflected on our time in Brownwood, this quote came to my mind. A jury doesn't reach a verdict in the middle of a trial. You know, I was in Brownwood reaching a verdict that I shouldn't have gone before I ever gave the invitation at chapel. I was in the middle of it, but we should wait till the trial plays out. Some of you tonight might be in a trial right now, and you're making, you're kind of like me. Well, where's God? I can't believe God would do this, da-da-da-da-da, and you've got good logic. Just like God didn't send rain, it's his fault. that the fa- No, it's not his fault. You should have watered around the slab. But you've got just enough logic, the devil's given you just enough logic to cause you to complain and to murmur. And Paul says, don't do that. If you're like that, you're going to dull your shine. But if you'll just trust God, you're going to be a contrast to that dark sky, brightly shining for the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to work at our salvation, first of all, in our attitude. Second of all, in our behavior. It's not just what's in our heart. It begins with what's in our heart, but it's not just that. It, what's on the inside comes outside. Now look in verse number 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice at the beginning of that, that you may become blameless. Notice the word become. It's a process. And notice the word blameless. It's not the word sinless. To be blameless is not to be sinless because none of us are, is sinless. We have all sinned. But what does it mean to be blameless? Because we read this word blameless in other New Testament passages. What, what does it mean to be a blameless person? That word blameless is a present tense idea. And what it is saying is that there should not be anything currently in your life that is an impediment to your witness for Jesus Christ. Sometime a person will read this idea about being blameless and becoming blameless, and they'll say, well, I can't, I can't be blameless because when I was in high school, I got drunk at the prom. Well, you shouldn't have gotten drunk at the prom, but if you did... Thank God He forgives us for those things. But you can have gotten drunk at the prom 30 years ago. Now, you weren't blameless that night, but you could have gotten drunk at the prom 30 years ago, been forgiven of that, and been sober for the last 30 years. You're blameless now. That's what Paul is saying, that you may become blameless, not sinless, but blameless, that there's nothing in your life right now that is in any way an impediment to your testimony of Jesus Christ. There's not a a scandal in your life. There's not an ongoing sin in your life. That doesn't mean that you never sin, but that you're not involved in a lifestyle of sin. A, A person who is, for example, living in adultery, that person is not living a blameless life because that adultery would prevent a blameless life. A person who is being dishonest at the workplace, they're not living a blameless life because their lifestyle, it's talking about a lifestyle. Not today did you lose your temper. Not today were you rude to your secretary or rude to your boss. No, we confess that. My dad preached Sunday. Sometimes we get traveling stains. We confess that. We get cleansed of that and we go on. But that doesn't mean, mean losing, you know, being rude to your boss is not the same as some of these other things. And so, to be blameless means there's nothing currently in your life, an ongoing pattern in your life. It could be pornography, it could be gambling, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sexual immorality, it could be all manner of things. And he said that doesn't fit your life, that you may become blameless, that you would, with God's grace and help, get to a place where there's no ongoing repetitive sin, no lifestyle That is in any way an impediment to your witness for Jesus Christ. Why? Because sin dulls your light, it takes the shine out. If I'm sinning, I don't have the same brightness and cheerfulness and happiness and lightness in my spirit. Not if I'm living in sin. But if I'm living my life before God, if I'm walking in the light as He is in the light, if I'm seeking not to sin, and then sometimes when I do sin, immediately there's confession and repentance. Then there's a lightness in my spirit. Let me give you a scripture verse to write down. Psalm 34 and verse 5. It says, they looked to God and were radiant. That is, if you in your life can look into the face of Jesus Christ by faith, we can't see Him, but by faith, and there's nothing between you and Jesus. There's no ongoing sin. There's no pattern. There's no lifestyle of disobedience. Just, there's nothing between you and Jesus. The Bible says there's going to be a radiance about you. There's going to be a glow about you. There's going to be a shine about you. And you're going to be shining like a star. And so, it's in our behavior, and it's a process. We're becoming that way. We're becoming more like Jesus. We won't be perfect until we get to heaven, but we're becoming more like Him. And then the third way, in your faithfulness. It's not only our attitude, it begins there. It's not only our behavior, it must be there, but it's also in our faithfulness. Look in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul's talking to people whom he had led to Christ. And he's saying what to them? He's saying, my prayer is that you would hold fast the word of life. Some of the translations say, hold firmly to the word of life. That your your faith would hold on to God firmly. Parallel scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished The race, I have kept the faith. Why does Paul say, I have kept the faith? Why does he use that word, kept the faith? Because Paul knew that the devil would try to do everything he can to get him to give up his faith. Not that you can lose salvation, but for all practical purposes, when things go wrong, you can just just throw up your hands and turn in your faith. And, And so Paul said, I have kept the faith. And here he's saying to these Philippian believers that you should hold fast the word of life. Hold firmly to the word of life. In my notes, I wrote this sentence tonight. I've been blessed the most in my life by those who have kept the faith and by those who hold on to God the tightest. Think about that. I bet you would say the same thing, that you've been blessed the most in your life. By who? By great orators? By brilliant theologians? No, please. No, but by those who have kept the faith, no matter what they go through, and those who hold on to God the tightest. When we were in Brownwood last week, as I mentioned, we got to meet their president, Dr. Corey Hines, his wife. We got to be reunited with our longtime friends, Richard and Wanda Jackson, who live out there now, Chris and Cindy Libram. Mickey and Linda Eddins, Weldon DeWitt. Most of these names don't mean anything to you, but these are people we've known in different settings for decades, and they mean a great deal to our family. One of the most meaningful encounters we had last week was that I was reunited with a man who was my major professor when I was working on one of my degrees at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary from 1998 graduated there in December of 2001, a man named Dr. Alan Jackson. For many years, Dr. Jackson was the foremost student ministry specialist in the nation. When I was in New Orleans Seminary, I was a student minister here at this church, and I wanted to study under him, and he was my major professor. I was with him very much for three years, but I haven't seen Dr. Jackson in 22 years not since my graduation. I've thought of him many times. I haven't talked to him. I haven't emailed him. I haven't talked to him. No, no contact. Several years ago, he left New Orleans Seminary, and he went to a wonderful church in Atlanta, Georgia, Dunwoody Baptist Church, if you're familiar with North Atlanta, and has pastored and is now pastoring that church and doing a tremendous job. When the professor called a couple of weeks ago and said, John, after you speak at chapel, is there any way that you and your dad could come to that class and Talked to a group of, of preachers about sermon preparation. And that was what I was referencing earlier, and, and we agreed to do that. And uh, so after chapel was over with the other day, we, we went to that class. Interestingly, before chapel started, I'm in the, I'm in the chapel with my dad getting that good for nothing microphone hooked on my ears. And Dr. Jackson, I told Dad, I said, I don't even know if Dr. Jackson will remember me. He's had hundreds of thousands of students. It's been 22 years. Well, sure enough, he did remember me, and he came up, and he hugged my neck. And I said, Dr. Jackson, I cannot believe you're here. He lives in Atlanta, but three times a year, he flies to Dallas, rents a car, and drives to Brownwood. And for the entire week, three times a semester, not a year, but three times a semester, He is teaching students at Howard Payne University. That's how much he loves education. I said to Dr. Jackson, I said, look, man, I got no business preaching chapel when you're here. I said, you should be preaching the chapel. I should be listening to you preach the chapel. He said, no, it's your turn to preach the chapel. I'm going to listen to you. And he said, let me tell you something. I'm going to be sitting on the second row, and I'm pulling for you. I can't tell you how much that meant to me for him to say that to me. And I, I, I saw him when I was up there, and he was praying and pulling for me. Well, after the class, after the chapel, we go to the class, and when, we, when Dad and I walk in, because we were a little late getting there from talking to people, he had two chairs at the front of the room for my dad and I to sit in. And we went in and sat down, and Dr. Jackson said, Dr. Rebman and John, we're just so glad that y'all have come. And, and he said, what I want to do, this is a preaching class, and what I wanted to do was to take John's sermon from chapel and do a critical evaluation of it I thought man you've been doing this and he said John the first thing I noticed (laughs) I'll tell you all this part he said I noticed and he said I want the class to notice this he said when John finished his sermon he left time for the Holy Spirit to work during that invitation and that's one reason all those people got saved and he was very calm he was paying me a compliment I'm feeling pretty good about that. He said, John, I just, I'm curious. Do you always end your sermon soon, short and leave the Holy Spirit time to work? And my dad spoke. It was to me he asked the question. And my dad said, he has never done that in all his life. So that's how our thing went, started going. They're just drilling us with questions, and we're having a good time, and, and we're laughing, and we're talking. and it just, it was, I was in a dream. I'm in a, in a university setting being questioned by my professor that I haven't seen in 22 years. And I just, I, with my father sitting next to me, ruining my reputation with the other people in the class. <laughs> but we had the best time. We were talking and conversation turns into the devil tries to mess a preacher up. And, and my dad said, you know, I've noticed through the years, guys, he's talking to all these young pre- He said, on Saturdays, the devil has done more to discourage me than any other day of the week. And he gave some illustrations, trying to get me not ready to preach on Sunday. And I shared a story or two. Dr. Jackson said, you know, I'm in Atlanta, and he said, I can't tell you how many tickets I've had offered to me to a Braves game on Saturday night behind home plate. And I have to say, no, I can't go to that game on Saturday night because I'm preaching on Sunday morning. So then I get a ticket to the Tuesday night game and I'm up so far from the field, I I can't see the players that are so far down So it's just preachers talking to preachers. It was a breath of fresh air. And we went on and finished the time. And then it was time for us to go back to be with Dr. Hines. And so we had taken some things to give to the students. And I gave Dr. Jackson a little something. and uh, I hugged his neck. I said, this has been a highlight of my life seeing you like this. He just smiled, and he said, it's been great for me too, John. He said, I've, "He said, let me tell you something. I have kept up with First Baptist Church Pasadena for the last 22 years. Ever since you graduated this school, I've kept up. I didn't even know he gave it a second thought. It was special being with him. Now, before I tell you why it was so special... This sentence, I have been blessed the most in life by those who have kept the faith and by those who hold on to God the tightest. What you would have no way of knowing about Dr. Jackson is that just a few months ago, he and his wife's 34-year-old son suddenly, unexpectedly died. And one of our ministers who knew what I thought of Dr. Jackson said, did you hear about Alan Jackson's son? I said, I didn't hear about it. And so when I met him chap before the sermon that day, I said, Dr. Jackson, I, I heard about your son. I, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry. And we had a moment to just talk about that for a minute. The, morning, the day went on like I'm describing. We came back to Pasadena last Wednesday night. And I've thought about Dr. Jackson many times since then. Here's a man who has experienced every success that a human being could have academically. He is pastoring one of the greatest churches in the nation now. He loves God. His wife loves God. And yet their 34-year-old son died a few months ago. And what is Dr. Jackson doing now? I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not complaining. He's not murmuring. He's not disputing. I'm not saying he hasn't had his low moments and even said, God, wow. But I'll tell you what Dr. Jackson's doing. He's pastoring his church. He's preaching his sermons. He's teaching those students. And he's walking with God by faith. And I think of everything that Alan Jackson taught me from 1998 to 2001 at New Orleans Seminary. And as wonderful as all that was, it doesn't hold a candle to what he taught me last Tuesday in Brownwood, Texas. That no matter what we go through in life, if we will hold on to our faith, and if we'll hold on to God, that God will hold on to us. You know, I was thinking about that before I left the house tonight, and I thought, you know, now you think about this. There's a secret that will help you when it comes to holding on to God, and that is this. His grip is stronger than ours. It's not primarily that we're holding on to God. We are holding on, but sometimes our grip gets weak, and sometimes we just about want to give up. But if we will refuse... To remove our hand from His, even at our lowest low, His grip will hold us up, and His grip will see us through. What is Dr. Jackson doing now? In my opinion, even more than he's ever done in all of his life, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's shining like a star in his attitude, in his behavior, and in his faithfulness. He is a wonderful contrast to how a person who doesn't know God might walk through that same valley and have a completely different response. Amen? And so, Father, tonight, I thank you that you have shown us in your word not only that we're supposed to shine like stars, but, God, you have shown us and told us how to shine like stars. Help us to do that. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, let me just walk through this, and and then we're going to stop. How's your attitude Is it filled with faith and optimism and trust? Or is it kind of like mine was at that Hampton Inn the other night down in Brownwood? God, I don't even think we should have come down here. Key doesn't fit. Room's not right. I didn't sleep. Microphone not working. I kind of had a a little season of complaining there. Inwardly. Nobody knew it, but it was there. And maybe you're kind of like that tonight. Would you just refocus and say, God, hey... Forgive me for this. You are sovereign. You are in control. I can trust you, and I do trust you even now with all my heart. I trust you, Jesus. How about your behavior? Is there anything currently happening in your life, any sin that you're entangled in that is preventing you from being blameless? Well, if so, how about tonight you just confess that sin to God? Repent, turn from that sin. And come out of that sin tonight. And begin to become, with God's help, you can still become a blameless person because blamelessness is in the present tense. It's not what happened in the past. It's present right here, right now. And how about your faithfulness? Are you holding on to God? Are you keeping the faith? Or have you about let go? Would you just tonight reaffirm your faith in God? God, I trust you. And God, I want to stay with you and stay close to you even during this valley I'm walking through. Now, some tonight maybe like those students in Brown. Would you say, John, I, I just don't know that I'm saved. I. I... I don't know whether I am or not. I had a faculty member come up to me after chapel, and he he put his hand out and said, I want to thank you for that message. I can't tell you how long I've struggled with the assurance of my own salvation. He's on the faculty at a Baptist university, and yet he came to the full assurance of his salvation last week. It was beautiful to hear him say that. How about tonight? Is that you? If you're not sure that you're saved, just say this. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person that you want me to be.